Off the Books episode of the All the Books show, recorded at the David A. Howe Public Library. We talk book news, author news, and literary news. Today is both an author interview and an interview with somebody who worked at NASA during the moon landing. Yes. So this is uh, it was a lot of fun for us to have one of another returning guest here to the All the Book Show. Uh, we first talked to David Dvorkin last year about his fiction books. Mm-hmm. This year, we talked to him about his time working at NASA from 1967 right. to 1971 uh, to celebrate 50 years of the moon landing. So tune in as we uh, talk with David Dvorkin, former NASA scientist. Uh, well, uh, Eric and I are joined by David Dvorkin. David, thanks for joining us once again. You're welcome. (laughs) Last year when we talked, we were talking to you primarily about your fiction work, some of your Star Trek writing and all that. And in the course of the interview, you had just sort of casually mentioned that that was during a time when you were working at NASA. And we just kind of kept going because we had our our questions and things. But uh, as soon as we got off the interview, we were like, oh, we have to talk to him about that. (laughs) So I'm glad that you were willing to do this. Yeah, well, I'm always glad to talk about it. Um, As I mentioned to you, my only real problem is uh, how long ago it was? Oh, and, sure. And, and you know, it's, uh, when I was writing, I wrote the little book that that um, you just read, just saw. Um, I was surprised by how many things I remembered, but also by how many I didn't. It's really <laughs> disturbing in a way. Yeah. So the the book is called When We Landed on the Moon, and it's out uh, coming out in paperback. You can get it as an ebook right now. Is that right? It's in both now. Okay, great. All right. Um, well, let's just dive right in. So as soon as you mentioned it, I got my copy and read through it, and I found it really fascinating. I thought, I thought you did a great job of um, pulling out just little everyday facts that I don't think you get often when when this time period of NASA is covered. You know, it tends to focus on, you know, the the biggest you know, the flashiest newsworthy elements of it. And I think that um, what I liked about yours was that you did cover those things, but you also just gave a, a real sense of what the day-to-day was like, you know, as, as somebody who was there. Well, of course, it focuses, most of the news, all the news at the time focused on the astronauts and what Absolutely. they were Absolutely, yeah. And then uh, what people saw and heard on their TV screens was the few people at NASA who were doing all the talking, you know, right. <laughs> Chris Croft and people like that who are doing the announcements and giving the interviews and a few people of that sort. But there were four hundred, oh, more than 400,000 of us off in the background in our rooms reading printout, giant stacks of printouts and dealing with giant stacks of punch cards because that's how we had to do everything and, you know, grinding away at it. And that, and that as I said in the book, that was the big secret for uh, for NASA for, for doing it at all, that they broke this immense task down into these uh, a multitude of tiny little ones mm-hmm. that handled by one or two or three people at a time. Yeah, see, and that's just, uh, I mean, I was reading that and like I was terrified, so I can't even imagine, you know, being like the one guy who's who has this little chunk of it and, you know, everything's sort of reliant on that. It It just illustrates just how many moving pieces it took, you know. Oh, right. And hardware, software, um, people on ships, people on, and not just Americans, people are on, in radar stations all over the world. We had Australians and Brits and other people uh, manning giant radar stations that were tracking the vehicles. And, and there's some kind of contract arrangement with the U.S. government and, uh, and people of all sorts, not to mention janitors and security guards and sure. types and secretaries and people like of that sort. And I was, I was terrified when I first got there because... Um, I didn't know what any of it meant. My my educational background had not prepared me at all. And I, I was how just, how could it? I mean, it was such a new, unique thing. It was new and unique. Although, if I had gone to an engineering school, maybe I would have been somewhat more prepared. I don't know. 
But uh, yeah, computers, I had never even seen a computer. I just vaguely knew what they were. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to learn programming and, and how to do computer runs right away. And and the, a whole new area of mathematics that my background had not, had not prepared me for. I had, as I said in the book, I had all kinds of romanticized ideas about what it would be like. I thought it would be like those 1950s uh, TV shows and, <laughs> and fiction movies. And it was nothing like that at all. Well, let's let's go right back to the beginning because I just I love the wording of this telegram. So it's 1967. You do an interview with NASA, and you get a telegram that says you have been selected to participate in man's greatest adventure, the conquest of space. You know, it's just I mean, talk about a 1950s flourish. I mean, right there, that feels <laughs> right out of a classic sci-fi. But can you describe the feeling of that? You know, it went on for pages. I um, <laughs> I still have it. My I, my wife says. That reminded me that we uh, I had an awful lot of NASA stuff in the basement. We had a basement flood many years ago that oh. destroyed some of it. So some of that may be lost. I don't know. I should try to dig through stuff and see if it's still there because it, it was it was a classic. Yeah, great. I didn't expect anything like that. I expected something much shorter. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, you can just, even from that, the wording that you've shared, I mean, you can see the pride that they had in it and the excitement that was felt. But for you, you know, because you were, you were what, 22, 23 at this point? Yes, right, right. Okay. I mean, what was that like to get that telegram? Oh, it was tremendously exciting, you know, because uh, I had been this space freak kid all my life. <laughs> I wanted to be a spaceman when I was young. I wanted to buy myself a, a, a spacesuit. When I was a kid, I was saving my, up my money, I remember, to, to buy myself a spacesuit, although um, in the end, my parents took money to use it for something practical. But <laughs> <laughs> And I, I had all these dreams of me. I thought, you know, this was going to, as I said, it was going to be like the, the movies and the TV shows. I was just so thrilled and excited. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then I, when I signed up, I started getting all kinds of um, glossy brochures from apartment complexes in the area showing, wow. showing me what a wonderful life I would have on the sea, you know, on the seacoast. Oh, sure. Well, I'm, I imagine it was a huge boom for that area. I mean, you're talking, you know, 400,000 plus, 400, plus people coming there. I mean... The infrastructure well, even that would require, you know, out around the world. So, yeah. uh, there were, there were probably I'd imagine total about fifteen to twenty thousand actually there. But it was farmland. This was um, at a sure. time when this was out in the nowheresville. It was midway between Houston and Galveston, and there was nothing for twenty-five miles to the north until you hit Houston. There was nothing twenty-five <laughs> miles to the south. There was nothing until you hit Galveston. Nothing, nothing except a dry heat, right? <laughs> well, wet, very, very wet heat. Oh, really? Oh, that's worse. <laughs> On the coast, yeah, horribly humid, and uh, lots of insects, and and farmland, and and um and fishing villages, a lot of fishing villages, and the oil industry was there, but it was all very small and isolated and and uh, insular. Um, they were not happy, as, well, as I learned later in the in the game. Um, the locals are not happy to see all these high-paid young techies from all over oh. the country. We were Texans, all people from all over, flooding in with our strange ways and strange ideas and, and youth and, and lots of spending money, you know, it was very disruptive to the area. Yeah, well, that makes sense. So even even with 15 to 20,000 people coming in, and that's a that's a big increase in population all of a sudden, you know. Very sudden, yes, right, right. So how did you, how did you even come to interview? Like, what, did you, were there postings for this, or how did that happen? I wish I could remember. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was in graduate school, I was interviewed with a lot of different uh, government agencies, including the National Security Agency and people like that, NASA, uh, people who were looking for uh, students with the technical background. Okay. And I don't, I, they must have had sign-up sheets. I, I just don't remember anymore. Okay. 
Well, this this part cracked me up in the book um, that that this whole NASA adventure of yours, you know, almost ended before it even started. Oh well, they um, it turned out that uh, NASA had overhired. They had gone too enthusiastic <laughs> and hired, sent out offers to, uh, to too many people, and they realized too late they were over budget. So this, uh, I had been hired, gotten the offer, and accepted it. Um, toward the end of the school year, probably May, April, May, something like that. Uh, and during that summer, they tried to contact some of these people who, such as, including me, the, the most recent hires, and beg them to withdraw their acceptance. They, they couldn't withdraw their side of it, but they wanted us to withdraw our side. And fortunately for me, I had gone off with some friends on a camping trip in Canada. I was uh, living in a sleeping bag in a Volkswagen van. Um, no cell phones, no emails. Sure, yeah. In those days, and no phones in some of the places we were out in the wilderness. It was a wonderful trip, and then I got back and uh, prepared and went down, moved down to Houston. And when I got there, I was told by a guy, one of the people who was there actually had been in graduate school with me at Indiana University. Oh, okay. And uh, so they asked, since he was, he knew me, they asked him to try to contact me and, and beg me to withdraw. But he told me about it when I got there. But since since they hadn't been able to contact me and I had shown up as as agreed, then, you know, they <laughs> I was in. Yeah, wow. Well, that was a well-timed camping trip. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about this a little bit at the top, and, and you you address it quite often in the memoir, but um, the, the stress, the stress of this job. Um, can you talk a little bit about what your what your title was and what your specific area of focus was and and how that how that mix of you know exhilaration and like great burden affected your time there uh i remember sleeplessness more than exhilaration actually okay (laughs) (laughs) my my job was um uh analyzing the navigation during the rendezvous phase when the lunar module ascended from the moon to uh at the end of of the mission to rendezvous with the command module, which had remained in orbit around the moon. Uh, only the command module was able to return to Earth. The lunar module didn't have that capability. So the two men who were on the moon had to get back inside the command module and then jettison the lunar module and they would return to Earth. So uh, the rendezvous was critical for their survival, otherwise they'd be left behind. They had to get back into the command module. Um, and to accomplish this rendezvous, rendezvous was, was complicated. They couldn't even they couldn't see each other until the very last few minutes. I mean, there were these two tiny little spacecraft in, in the blackness, you know. Um, so they had to, they contact, they locked onto each other with radar. Each one of them had a radar dish. They locked onto each other, and then the readings were fed into the onboard computer and uh, backed up by some computers on Earth. We would go through all the, the equations to, to calculate the maneuvers so that they could uh, end up together. And my job was to it was error analysis called was to um, calculate how far off they were likely to be. Uh, not the actual maneuvers themselves, but how accurate those maneuvers would be. Right. So as long as they as long as they were expected to be accurate to within a few feet and a few feet per second in, in speed, that was acceptable. If they were had been off by a thousand miles, you know, or, or potentially off by a thousand miles, that would be a real danger sign. Um, so it was it was all very it was computer runs it was all computer runs it was all abstract in a way until the mission actually happened but the problem was that at, at the beginning when i started there um there were two months what they call two month centers and it was two months between launches of the Apollo missions which meant that the work had to be done very quickly because 
there was a chain of different groups doing work and feeding the data to the next group. I couldn't do mine and my work until I got a bunch of data from a whole bunch of other people. Okay. And then I had to do my work quickly and pass my numbers on to other people who would then use them in their planning. So everyone was under tremendous stress to, to meet the deadlines because the launches would not be delayed. Um, and uh, if anyone upstream from me uh, was slow, that put that, and I had less time to do my work. And, and if I had been slow, that would have put more pressure on the people downstream from me and so on. So it, the time pressure was, was enormous. You, you couldn't just do it when you felt like it. Basically, it had to be done by a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then you had to deal with um, the very big old slow computers that sometimes didn't do their job and, you know, things. Card punch uh, punch cards got mangled in the in the machine, and you had to re-punch all your cards and fight with other engineers for the limited number of key punch machines we had available, and, you know, and then get all your printout and all that. So just just the mechanics of it, it, it yeah, time-consuming and could be made it even more stressful. Well, absolutely, because I mean, as you're describing it, you have the stress of your own work, you know, making sure that you're right, making sure your your figures all match up, but then you're also you know, in the middle of what's essentially a domino effect. You know, you're saying if, if right. a guy a few steps ahead of you screwed up or was too slow, it would just kind of throw everybody else off. So, I mean, you have your own work to stress about and the effect you have on everybody else. So, yeah, I mean, that's, it's stressful. And then there was some, there were some missions, uh, well, I mentioned Apollo 9, but that actually happened with um, a couple of other missions where the numbers we got were were disturbingly high, the error, possible errors. Really? meant that someone upstream would have to redo things or have to redo the hardware or re- redo some work in order to um, see if they could improve their numbers so that we could then get better numbers to try again uh, in hopes that you know our numbers would then be better. So um, mm-hmm. everything had to go back again a few steps. So you talked a little bit as well about um, some time you spent in the mission operations control room doing what was essentially a monitor duty, listening to listening to the chatter, listening to what's going on up there, seeing some of the images. And what's interesting to me about that is, you know, here here we are 50 plus years later and, you know, we've, we've all seen these classic images and, you know, we've heard the we've heard and seen the bits that were deemed, you know, interesting or exciting for the TV viewing audience. So um, I want to know a little bit what it was like to. I mean, a be seeing it totally unfiltered, seeing everything happening and seeing it first, you know. Oh, that was that was the best part of it. Uh, that was Apollo 15. That was uh, the last mission that I worked on, and um, uh, that was the only one as, that I was in the mission control room on. And my uh, my group, um, we didn't we didn't actually participate in the actual operation mechanics of the mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were there in case something went wrong, we would have to be consulted. So we were just there for a shift, um, watching watching the monitors and. With the headphones on in case something happened and they would contact us. But uh, in my case, uh, well, and nothing did go wrong, so that meant that I was there for the night shift, just just uh, just watching and waiting and and, sure. and watching the monitor. And as I said in the book, it just happened that my shift, my night shift, uh, coincided with a lot of the um, the EVAs, the extravehicular activity that mm-hmm. the astronauts on the on the surface, and they had the little rover. That was the first one, the first mission to use that. Uh, four-wheel rover uh, vehicle so they could go around much greater distances. Uh, so I, there was nothing for me to do really, but uh, well, I could have tried to read a book or, or something, but uh, this was much more interesting. Oh, I, yeah. uh, I was watching watching the live feed, listening to the, the chatter, um, and as I, I said, watching the uh, 
the medical channel to see their vital signs, and which was really fascinating watching the, the astronauts' vital signs while they did various things. And a lot of it was, you know, pretty pretty tedious work for them, I'm sure. And sure. It's interesting that they would talk about taking a rock sample. What about that one over there? That looks interesting. I think that's a, they had been trained in, given a, a lot of training in geology. Basically, they were they were test pilots who had been trained uh, intensively in geology, so they would know what they were looking for. The alternative would be to send up real geologists, real scientists, but then you'd have to train them to do the kind of yeah. stuff that test pilots could do, and they'd probably, they'd probably be beyond them. Uh, so NASA decided this made more sense to use test pilots. So they, they were well trained, and they, they would look at the rocks and try to identify different things and see if it was of interest. And, and uh, but, you know, that wasn't terribly interesting to listen to, but, but it was interesting to know that this was actually on the moon, and they were surrounded by a vacuum. And yeah. One thing I did mention uh, in the book, Dave Scott, the, the record writer, <laughs> who, who liked to drive the, the, the moon buggy uh, into small craters so they would bounce way up in the air and got a kick out of that. He, um, he also seemed to like, I got the impression listening to the dialogue be, uh, between the two astronauts that he was deliberately falling. He fell a lot on the moon in mm. Apollo 15 because the spacesuits they were wearing were almost like giant balloons and right. he'd fall bounce back up uh, to some distance and land on his feet. And uh, the first few times it happened, it was they told him to be careful, and then it kept on happening. And, and it was clear that he was doing it for fun, which is just amazing to me, because what, if, what would have happened if he had punctured his suit? Right, yeah. <laughs> but that's, I guess that's the mentality of the astronaut versus the desk jockey. I guess, yeah. Well, if you didn't bring up the the reckless driving on the moon, I was going to ask you about that, because that really <laughs> cracked me up in the book where you're, where you're listening to... Uh, James Irwin being like, that one looks big, Dave, Dave, Dave. You know, and <laughs> I don't think Walter Cronkite talked about that on the evening news. <laughs> no, probably not. I to hear it at all. Yeah. Oh, it's just so funny. I love how you describe either either dead silence afterward or just grumbling. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the memoir was was these little bits that you were able to, able to put in that were just kind of in everyday life. You, you talked a little bit about... Um, what it was like when you're all down in this area off the clock. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just is life in that area when you when you weren't uh, doing your super stressful job? Well, yes. Um, I emphasized in the book how young almost everyone was. I mean, I was I was one of the younger ones there in my early twenties, but not the very youngest. And uh, the rest of the engineers tend to be in the mid to late twenties. Uh, and management was in the lower management was thirties, upper management was in their forties. So Everyone was young and, and you know, it was this high-stress environment, um, lots and lots of single people, uh, thousands and thousands of single young people, <laughs> distressed, you know, the inevitable, uh, the inevitable uh, blowing off steam. One place I mentioned was the um, Ellington Air Force Base Officers Club. Right. Ellington Air Force Base is fairly nearby, and NASA maintained, uh, kept the, uh, the astronauts' T-38 jet trainer, trainer jets there that they could fly around any time. They also had an officers club, and we were all given memberships in the officers club. So we could go there on Friday nights and get really cheap beer and free shrimp, and uh, and you know hook up. It was a Greek hook up place, meat market where you see astronauts. I won't mention the name, but he's one one you hear often in the news. That you, know, you could observe him making the rounds there and trying to pick up girls. <laughs> well, so it's pretty good bragging rights, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's easier for an astronaut than for you know, an aerospace engineer. Yeah. What do you do? Radar error. Right, right. 
as yep. opposed to I'm about to walk on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not fair. That's an unfair advantage. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And then I also talked about the um, the splashdown parties, which was this amazing orgy. It was not, nothing you expect to see from these starchy people with ties on, you know, and suits and all that. Um, at at um at the end of the mission, when the, when this capsule the command module splashed down into the ocean, then it became the Navy's responsibility to recover them. Okay. Uh, and bring them home. And so, the people at NASA really had nothing more to do. That was the end. There was no more we could do anyway. Right. So we were all relieved from duty, and everyone just poured out of the space center, kind of shut down for a while. We went across uh, NASA Road or NASA Boulevard. This big highway that ran in front of the space center, and the other side are a whole bunch of hotels and all the contract. The aerospace contractors would have stopped, have it all stocked up in preparation, with lots of free booze and food, but mostly booze. So thousands and thousands of people, um, male and female, mostly young, but not always. A lot of them, middle-aged and married, would be there just drinking themselves crazy and falling into the swimming pools and disappearing into the, you know, into the hotel uh, <laughs> to blow off steam. This would go on all night long and then the next morning everyone's back presumably with hangovers but they're not showing it you know looking all starchy again yeah i'm quite sure walter cronkite never said that on the news oh he never mentioned that really. no i don't i don't recall uh so you were there you were there what you said 1967 to 1971 right that's right and how how does your i mean what what's your morale like because i imagine going in in, in 67 you know you're riding high everything's everything's mm -hmm. big and exciting and then as you as you coast toward the end of that i mean could you sense that there was a there was a bit of a pullback in in the ideas of exploration and that that you know just that that bold mission that jfk had sort of laid out i mean was that palpable at the time oh it, it very much was and it was it was a factor in my leaving i mean we we didn't like we hated the climate but um most of all even more to me the i did i thought the future was i didn't have a future there i they were already starting to have uh, risk reduction in force which is the government term for layoff. Um, and I thought there were many more coming. There were big budget cuts coming. Um, there was no follow-on already. There had been decreed there would be no follow-on to Apollo, uh, no, at least no, no manned exploration beyond Earth orbit. Uh, originally, of course, uh, the whole idea was that Apollo would just be laying the groundwork. Right. We'd have bases on the moon, and then we'd be aiming at Mars and, and so on. But um, it was Richard Nixon who, as I remember, who basically said, no, the next thing is some sort of Earth orbital uh, mission, which, which evolved into the space shuttle. But, but at that time, there wasn't even a plan for a space station. So the space shuttle didn't have anywhere to go to. It would go into orbit and then come back down. That would be the end of it. Um, and there was no, to be no more Apollo. And, and there were stretches. They canceled the last two missions. Originally, I think there was supposed to be a, an 18 and 19 uh, but it ended with Apollo 17, um, and and they were stretching out the time. Is there two months between missions? It was four months or however long, um, and everything was just wind. A sense of winding down. It was all this, all the excitement and enthusiasm was just winding down. Not even in, enthusiastically, like a splashdown party, more like air being let out of the balloon. Um, there was money pouring into unmanned exploration, and one of the big ones was the Viking Mars lander, and I. I was able to get a job. I had a leads on a job here in Denver at that time, and we we both liked Colorado a lot. And I had been to Denver on business for NASA a few times, uh, and, and really liked it. So it seemed 
with much regret, it seemed like a, the time to, to leave. And um, I didn't, I can't say that I went to the Viking project with the same kind of naive enthusiasm it was a, that I had with Apollo because because it wasn't manned, you know, it wasn't exciting. Right. It, was, it was good stuff and they did, it was a great project and they were very successful, but it just wasn't emotionally stirring. So do you think, I mean, uh, what's your perspective as an eyewitness to all this? I mean, do you think it was just a, a matter of you know, changing in, you know, political ideologies and, and a sense that, well, we did it, you know, we went to the moon, we're done. I mean, do you think that was it? Or, or what was it that really put the brakes on everything? I don't know. At the time, I felt very bitterly that it, it was a shiny, bright object and the public liked it for a while and then lost interest and got interested in other shiny objects. Mm. Of course, the Vietnam War was probably a factor too, you know, sure. a big one, and and the budget problems related to that. If if not for that, who knows? Maybe uh, maybe the money wouldn't have seen that seemed that important to the public. Um, I I really don't know. Um, <clears throat> I guess before we did it, it was an amazing thing. But once we had landed once, then then everyone got bored. Oh, we're we're landing on the moon again. Big deal. So, yeah. So the sort of uh, incremental exploration, adding. Adding new things like the rover just just didn't really do the job emotionally for most people. Mm-hmm. As as you reminisce about this, and as you sat down to write this memoir, is there is there a certain is there a certain situation or event uh, from your time there that 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 always sort of draws you back as something that you maybe feel the most proud of, or or the or the most the most memorable for you to have been a part of? Probably Apollo Eight, even though it was a it was a stunt, um, because it was. Unlike all the other stuff that had been so carefully planned and so also meticulous, Apollo 8 was was done quickly and on the fly, and everyone, no one really knew how to, what to do or, or if it would work. I mean, we had to we had to do all this work very quickly and intensely for days and days on end, and it worked amazingly well. Uh, that to me, that does stand out. And of course, they've got that amazing, wonderful photograph. And oh yes. This whole idea of human beings being in orbit around the moon was somehow, in some ways, even more fantastic and amazing than than landing on the moon. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned the photograph, and I I liked that story as well. So that was that was a photograph taken by the astronauts from orbit. Oh uh, yeah, well they they took a, a few pictures as they were, one of the orbits they were coming around the moon, and they hadn't even planned it, and and they saw this beautiful giant Earth rising. Above them, as they as they orbited, it was it appeared to rise up above the, the lunar horizon, the rise in the sky. And one of the astronauts they hadn't really expected this, or been forewarned. Some one of the astronauts grabbed one of the big, powerful color cameras they had and managed to load the film in time. It took a, a bunch, of, a few pictures, but there's one of them in particular that became famous. It's called Earth Rise, and you know you see it all the time online, um, and and um, and it came to sort of epitomize the, the whole mission. Mm-hmm. A very, very stunning, beautiful picture uh, shows the moon below and the, and the earth against the black sky. Um, NASA printed up, and the story I saw in the book that you're referring to is that mm-hmm. uh, NASA printed up a, a, quite a large number of copies, planning high-quality glossy copies, uh, very big, um, showing uh, planning to give them out to congressmen and other influential people so they could hang that on their wall and maybe be be influenced to give more money to NASA. Mm-hmm. And then someone pointed out, after they had all been printed, someone pointed out the the print was mirror image, you know, <laughs> the negative had been put in back to front or something like that. 
So fortunately, instead of throwing them away, they, they sent out the word somehow. I don't remember how. We didn't have email, but the word got out that they were giving these things away to the first-come, first, first, first served bases. So a bunch of us raced. We were in the same building, fortunately, as, as that office, the PR office. And we, we raced down there and were able to get our hands on this. So I, I still have that mirror image copy of, of the Earthrise. It's a very beautiful picture. I love looking at it. Well, it sounds like a pretty good movie prize to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that was my prize for all those days without sleep. 24 yeah. hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty good souvenir. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, I do have others. I have a little medallion that's supposed to have um, a bit of metal from one of the uh, one of the spacecraft. I, oh. I don't know which one. They melted it down and, and minted a whole bunch of metals for us. and So we have... The, a tiny fraction of metal in each one. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that'd be great. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Um, for our listeners, if you haven't read the book, go out and find it. You can check out a copy here at the library as soon as we get our paperback copy in, and it's available pretty much any place where you can get eBooks. Uh, when We Landed on the Moon by David Dvorkin. So I hope you check that out. And David, uh, where's the best place for people to find you online, find your works and other things? Uh, my website, which is my Dvorkin. Pardon me, Dvorkin.com, my name, D-V-O-R-K-I-N.com. And that is all my, my books, my now 29 books, including this one, uh, with descriptions and links for buying them and, and so on. Wonderful. Well, again, I want to thank you so much for uh, sharing your memories with us. I think um, this it's perfect for our summer theme, which is a universe of stories. We're doing a lot of uh, space-centric programming, so this was really, really excellent for us and, and perfect timing with the 50-year anniversary and everything. So we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thank you. So we sort of just stumbled into this because uh, about 15 years ago, mm -hmm. I had read a book called The Trellisane Confrontation by David Dvorkin. Yep. And uh, more recently, I read uh, the Next Generation book he wrote called Captain's Honor. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've read all of his Star Trek books, including Time Trap. And so I'd reached out to him uh, back in uh, 2018, this first interview uh, that we're going to share now was originally released on June 22nd, mm -hmm. 2018, where we talked primarily about his, uh, his fiction books, including mm -hmm. the Star Treks. In the conversation, he just sort of casually mentioned his time at NASA. So yeah. as soon as we stopped rolling, we were like, boy, we got to remember that yep. for the future. So this year with Universe of Stories, that's, that's when we sort of got the idea to reach out to him again yep. and do the NASA interview that you just heard. But just for fun, we're going to share with you the interview that we did back in 2018 where we talk about his fiction work. Enjoy. Well, we're here with author David Dvorkin. Uh, Eric and I have both read his stuff, and we had some questions that we wanted to ask him, and he was kind enough to agree to talk to us. So, David, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So what we have is uh, just a quick take five series of questions here. Uh, the first one is, what unique challenges come into play when you're writing established characters versus your own original creations? Well, it's, uh, it is much more limited or, or restrictive. You, um, you cannot just invent uh, a history <laughs> for the characters right. or change them any way you want to. Um, we ran into that very much with Star Trek. Um, where, for instance, in one scene in the book I wrote with my son, I had a scene where Riker uh, is in charge of the of the ship, and he expresses some doubt or in his thoughts. He's thinking about, uh, he's not quite sure if he's up to this, and Paramount shot that down right away. They said that uh, Star Trek officers never feel any doubt. Oh, wow. Writing characters with no doubt would certainly be a limitation. With no doubt. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, I did, a, as you may know, I did a um, uh, Sherlock Holmes pastiche, mm -hmm. and that I was pretty 
free uh, to do anything I wanted with because of the Sherlock Holmes' story is fixed in the books that Conan Doyle wrote. Uh, he's long dead and the family didn't have any control over it, so I could do what I wanted. I could change. Then you don't want to change it, of course, too much because he still wanted to be the same character that uh, readers are familiar with and love, but you can, you can do much more than with, especially television show characters because they keep very strict control over those. Oh yeah, of course. Well, Eric wanted me to ask if you were if you were a sci-fi fan who got into Star Trek or a Star Trek fan who got into sci-fi. No, I was a science fiction fan uh, long before Star Trek existed. Okay. Um, and when Star Trek came on the air, I was actually I was working at NASA at the time uh, in Houston on the Apollo program. So it it was you know that was that was really neat. We loved yeah. <laughs> loved it. Uh, but I was and I I watched it every show. Uh, I mean, every episode, and then when it went off the air, I watched the reruns over and over again. That's <laughs> so great. Brainwashed my son into it. So. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, indoctrinate young, I find. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, you mentioned your book, Captain's Honor, but I wanted to talk about that for a minute. So in that book, you take the, the quasi-Roman setting from an episode of Star Trek, the original series, and you bring it into the next-gen era. And I was just wondering, what about that episode, uh, Bread and Circuses, I think it is, what about that yeah. intrigued you, and why did you decide to set it in a next-gen era? Oh, well, uh, it wasn't exactly so much that episode. It was really um, Patrick Stewart. Okay. Uh, he, he was in uh, uh, Claudius, yes. I Claudius. And that was the first thing I ever saw him in. I think he that may have been his first major role. He was fairly young, I think, playing um, <clears throat> Sejanus. And, and uh, uh, my wife and I loved that series. We thought he was just an amazing actor. We were just blown away by his Sejanus. And so, and then with him being um, in the the Next Generation, I, I came up with the idea of there being a Sejanus character in this other in this Roman Empire. And the fact that it's, you know, basically the same man physically, he'd be his double, that that would uh, make an intriguing story. The problem then was that um, uh, there'd be 2,000 years off the mark because the right. uh, the other Roman empires has followed basically the same timeline. So I, so we had to wave our hands and, and say he was somehow, just happened to look just like the famous Sejanus of history. And let's go after him. Uh, the problem is the famous Sejanus, his children were murdered. Oh, wow. By the emperor's orders, when when he uh, when he lost the influence, so they didn't have any descendants, as okay. far as we know. Okay. Now you were mentioning when we were talking off mic that originally you 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 know with the cover you thought the two of them would look alike, and then they yeah. don't. <laughs> yeah, you know we complained about that, my son and I. Um, the whole idea, and that's a gimmick in the story, is that they are virtually look like twins. Right. They both Patrick Stewart, and. Uh, and again, they, on the cover, they had that stubble-faced, stubbling, right. surly guy. And you can't imagine a Roman officer with with unkempt stubble anyway. Right. You know, they would never have done that. And then they had a the Japanese sword on yes, the cover. Yes, that, that cracked me up. Yeah, and we, we talked about it. We uh, they said, "Do you want any changes made in the cover?" And we sent a very strong message to them, and then they ignored it, which <laughs> publishers tend to do. So, do you find that common? You don't get a lot of say in what the covers look like. I'm afraid so, yeah. Okay. Um, they, they always say you do, but in practice you don't. Okay. Well, let's, let's stick with talking about your son for a minute. So you collaborated with your son Daniel on Captain's Honor, as well as a political thriller you guys did together, Dawn Crescent. I'm just wondering right. how that works, working with someone else. It worked very well for us. Um, 
for one thing, at the time, his writing style was extremely similar to mine, so uh, there wasn't uh, much of a problem there. <clears throat> also, in both cases, I kind of came up with the, the detailed outline, and then we just uh, chose which chunks of the outline each of us wanted to write. So we went off and did our own thing, and then I, I went over the whole book to make sure that the pieces meshed together. Okay. And that worked well, as I said, because his writing style at the time was similar to mine. I think it has, has changed a lot now, so I don't know. Uh, since then, so I don't know how well it would work now. Mm. All right, well, let's, uh, let's move on to short stories for a minute here. Uh, I really enjoyed your collection, Earthmen and Other Aliens, specifically oh. the, the story, The Ghost of Stancifer Street. Yes, I right. Like, I like that one a lot. Uh, I just wondered, what, in your opinion, what, what's the key to writing a good short story? Punchy idea that can be completely handled in a short space. It doesn't. It cannot depend on long character development and, and complicated plot. Um, I, in my own case, I, I, I think this must be common. I started out churning out short stories, huge numbers, when I first started writing, and then then they started getting longer and longer. Now everything I write is it, I. Is book length in my mind. I find it hard to write a short story now because I tend to think in, in terms of lots of plot and character development. I like novellas, short, very short novels, very long stories, a nice length. What, what I liked of, about Stansover Street was the way it ends with a punch, you know, like you want yeah. more and it, it doesn't yeah. give you any more. You're just left kind of haunted by it. Well, yeah, I, um, yeah, I was happy with the ending. It, it gave me a little chill when I wrote it. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. But uh, I actually have, have expanded that idea into a novel, which I'll be writing, working on, I hope, sometime in the next year or two. Really? A very, oh. Yeah, a long multi-generational ghost story. Oh, wow. Like, I'd love to read that. <laughs> I hope you get the chance. Yeah, I'll yes. keep an eye out for it. Uh, oh, so a final question in our take five here. So Eric and I both read Trellising Confrontation, and I've read your other Trek stuff and your short stories. But I'm wondering, for someone who hasn't read your work before, do you have a favorite or, a, or something you'd recommend they start with? Well, I have two favorites. Um, one is a, is a very strange, a very zany comic novel called um, Business Secrets from the Stars. Oh, yes. And the other is a uh, somewhat grim, somewhat military uh, time travel adventure novel called um, uh, The Time and the Soldier. Great. And you have a full list of your works on your website, which is just Dvorkin.com? Dvorkin.com, right. Okay. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, I enjoyed your work. I know Eric has too, and we're glad to have you on the show. Well, thank you. I'm All glad right. to be here. And that was the original David Dvorkin interview. That's true. What are we going to do next year? I, he didn't give us any little hints of what we're going to talk about next, but we'll figure it know. out. Yeah. yeah, every year it's our annual yeah. David Dvorkin. But uh, <laughs> we we do really appreciate uh, the time David's given to us for the podcast for the last two years now. Mm -hmm. um, you can find more about his work at Dvorkin.com. We have his Star Trek books as well as the new book, When We Landed on the Moon, here in our collection. So if you're local, I urge you to come in and check it out. Once again, thanks to David Dvorkin, and yeah. uh, we'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to listen to some of our full episodes, you can find us on All the Book Show on SoundCloud, Twitter, and uh, David A. Howe Public Library on Facebook. That's right.